Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Hello, hello, and Happy New Year to everyone. Welcome to the podcast. This is going to be a special New Year's message, and in the coming year, we'll return to our podcast series, through the Gospel of Mark. One of the experiences that we all have in common is remembering things, or, well, I guess at least trying to remember them. As one person said, if I get any more forgetful, I'll be able to plan my own surprise birthday party. When it comes to the subject of remembering, there's so many facets and aspects to it. We might be remembering experiences from decades ago, like our childhood days, One of my very earliest memories is from the age of four and watching my five-year-old brother leaving our house and walking up the street to attend elementary school, kindergarten. I was upset that I couldn't go to school yet. Then some years later, I was upset because I had to go to school. Most oftentimes, we're simply trying to remember important things in the present, like, uh, well, remembering someone's birthday or a meeting time an errand we have to run, or putting the garbage can out on pickup day, or sending out an email, or making an appointment, or remembering a certain item that we needed at the grocery store, and then remembering how much less that item used to cost just a year ago at the grocery store, or remembering the name of that person you just ran into at the grocery store, or trying to remember where you parked your car at the grocery store. Sometimes we wake up in the middle of the night and we remember something. Why is it that we remember so many things when we're in bed? Like the name of that person we ran into at the grocery store. Every once in a while after I'm snug and in bed at night, I'll suddenly remember something that I need to do the next day and I don't want to forget. So I have this little trick. I reach over and grab the tissue box on the nightstand and I just toss it on the floor. Then in the morning when I get up, I see the tissue box, and I remember what I needed to do. It sounds really weird, but it works for me. When New Year's rolls around, we might be remembering and reconsidering the past year. Hopefully, we're doing that with gratitude to the Lord for all of his blessings. Even in our difficult circumstances, we recognize God's sustaining grace. It's also a good time to remember and remind ourselves of what's spiritually important as we move forward into the new year. And so in our time together then, I'm throwing the tissue box, which is the title of my message, so that when we wake up in the new year, we'll remember these four spiritual truths. Let's begin with number one, the great commandment. As you know, the Bible gives us many commandments. We're all familiar with the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments recorded in Exodus 20. For the Jewish people, they have identified and extracted 613 commandments from the Old Testament, which are recorded and revered in their writings. And then there's even an Australian ministry that has identified what they believe to be 1,050 commandments found in the New Testament. Hey, whatever the actual number of commandments there might be in the Bible, we know this for certain 
the greatest commandment for all believers is to love God supremely. We know this because Jesus answered that exact question from some religious leaders. That's recorded in Matthew 22. They asked him, saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. His answer, then, is in total agreement with the Ten Commandments, those 613 Jewish Old Testament commandments, and with every commandment written in the New Testament. Please notice that Jesus didn't say, Obey God supremely, or trust God supremely, or worship God supremely. He said, Love God supremely. And that's because if we love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, our obedience, trust, and worship will follow suit. The word for love describes supreme love and includes absolute devotion, dedication, and the steadfast decision to hold God above everyone and everything else. In describing our love for God as including our heart, soul, and mind along with our strength, as Mark's gospel adds, it's not dividing our love up into separate sections. It's expressing that our love for God includes every fiber of our being. Listen, please. We determine the priorities of our life, and those priorities then will define our life. So how do we cultivate our love for God? Well, first off, if we truly love God supremely, we'll want to know Him as much as humanly possible. That means spending each day in His Word, learning about His character and promises, as well as His commands. I hope that in this coming new year, you will make it a priority to be in God's Word each and every day. You'll be blessed as a result. It also means spending time in prayer each day and drawing close to God in our hearts. It means worshiping every day and praising Him for His goodness and holiness. It means trusting Him with every detail of our lives. As a result, it will affect all of our decisions, including how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we respond to other people, how we respond to adversity, how we respond to authority, what we spend time thinking about, how we do our jobs, and so forth. When we keep God first, everything else falls into its proper place. So, first and foremost, moving forward into the new year, let us love God supremely. Well, after the great commandment then comes the great commission. Staying in Matthew's gospel and moving ahead to chapter 28, Jesus spoke these words to his disciples and followers just before his ascension back up to heaven. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and truly I am with you always, even until the end of the age. The first thing we want to note is that this is a commandment, and as the great missionary J. Hudson Taylor put it, the Great Commission is not an option to be considered, it's a command to be obeyed. The second thing we need to note is what this command actually says. Now, many people describe the Great Commission as the call of God upon believers to share their faith. Others point out that the Great Commission is to make disciples, which then includes baptizing them and teaching them. It is worth noting that the only direct command in the Greek wording of what Jesus said there in Matthew 28 is the command to make disciples. 
And then the way in which we are to make disciples is by baptizing new believers and teaching them God's word. A disciple, by simple definition, is a learner and a follower, and in this case, a learner and follower of Jesus Christ. But then that begs the question, where are these converts and new believers going to come from unless we share the gospel message with them? Paul addresses this very important matter in Romans 10 when he says this, listen, please, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's great. But then Paul adds, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him if they've never heard? And how shall they hear unless someone tells them? And how shall someone tell them unless they are sent? Please follow me on this as we ask the question, who then is sent to share the gospel? Well, going back to Matthew 28, the first word Jesus spoke in giving us the Great Commission is the word go. Go and make disciples. Going conveys the idea of taking the gospel to all the nations and to the whole world. And then we're to make disciples of those converts and new believers by baptizing them and instructing them in God's word. Hey, listen, please. We can't make disciples if there are no new believers to disciple. As Warren Wiersbe used to say, and he's right, the church is just one generation short of extinction. We also see this clearly in Acts 1. After Jesus gives his followers this great commission, go to make disciples, then Jesus expounds upon that on the Mount of Olives, just before he ascended up into heaven. And he told his disciples, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So after Jesus ascended, the Holy Spirit came and empowered the believers. They, in turn, were called to start right there in Jerusalem as witnesses and then take that gospel message out to Judea, Samaria, and on out to the rest of the world. As people heard the gospel and were saved, they were to make disciples of them, baptizing them and teaching them God's word. That's the Great Commission. It includes all of that. And the Great Commission compels us to share the good news. I notice on social media today that many Christians are arguing and debating one another, and sometimes there can be a place for that. But for the most part, listen, we need to stop arguing with the saved and start sharing with the lost. I read about a man named Luigi Terracio who passed away in the mid-1800s. When a search was made of his Italian farmhouse, dozens of extremely rare and valuable violins were discovered hidden away in his attic. This included his prized possession, an untouched and priceless 1716 Stradivari violin, which he had called the Messiah. You might be able to see where this illustration is going. Just as Luigi had hidden his priceless Messiah violin and then died without ever having shared it with anyone, so do some believers live and die without ever sharing their priceless Messiah with anyone. Let the unsaved world report the bad news. Let us share the good news. Today, wherever the Lord has us, we're to take that gospel message and share it with the unsaved. We have so many opportunities to do that with our family, our neighbors, our co-workers, just wherever the Lord opens the door. 
there are also other ways to, let's say, quote unquote, share the gospel and shine the light of Jesus. We can invite someone to church. Many Christians are intimidated by the thought of sharing their faith, but you can simply invite someone to church. And there's a good chance that if someone does come and attend church, they'll hear the gospel and enter into a saving relationship with the Lord. You can also share your personal testimony. When I used to work in the secular workforce, that was, I found, an effective tool for me. In other words, I would have a coworker who was facing a very difficult situation. So I'd go to them and I would show uh, compassion and concern. I would listen to them, sympathize with them, and then I would share with them my personal testimony and how trusting Christ had turned my life around. Another great way to share our faith and shine the light is by helping someone. When we help out an unsafe person in need, it's a tangible way of showing them God's love. Jesus used that approach many times in the Gospels. So first, we have the great commandment. Second, we have the great commission. And now thirdly, we have the great comfort. No matter what has happened to us in this past year or what may happen to us in the new year, we have the great comfort of our unchanging and eternal salvation. Nothing in this world can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even if you have failed miserably spiritually in this past year, be reminded, know now that there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. All of our sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Make no mistake about it, there will be consequences to our sins, but there will be no condemnation as believers. And so please, at your lowest point, know God is your hope. At your darkest moment, God is your light. At your weakest time, God is your strength. And in your saddest hour, God is your comforter. I've got great news for you. Your trials are temporary, but God's grace and love is eternal. For many of you as believers, you're facing a very difficult situation because we live, you live in a fallen world. Your health is getting worse instead of getting better. You've lost your job and there's no new job in sight. Your marriage is getting harder rather than getting easier. Your child is getting more rebellious instead of more compliant. You've lost someone close to you and while you know they're in heaven, heaven and your loved ones still seem so far away. In your struggle with an addiction, you take two steps forward and five steps back leaving you to wonder if there's any real hope. Listen, there is. We give God many reasons to stop loving us, but none of them can change God's mind about how much he loves us. As the psalmist wrote, let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promises. Psalms 119 verse 76. In the New Testament, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And now listen to what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. We do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. 
Even if our lives are going reasonably well, we definitely give thanks to God for the great comfort of our salvation because, hey, without the grace and mercy of God, we would all perish along with the rest of the world. The good news is this world is not our home. Our citizenship and our future are both in heaven. Now, I understand many unsaved people today deny the reality of both heaven and hell. They refuse to believe, and they think that by refusing to believe that it releases them from their accountability to God, or so they think. Jesus has become Savior to those who trust and believe, and he will become judge to those who reject and refuse to believe. The good news is that heaven is for real, and the bad news is that hell is for real. When C.H. Spurgeon was training young students for pastoral ministry in London, England at his school, he would tell them, when you talk about heaven, let your face shine with a heavenly glow. And when you talk about hell, your everyday face will do just fine. (laughs) Our hearts bear witness to what God promises us about heaven and scripture. For example, in John 14, Jesus was gathered with his disciples on the night before his arrest and crucifixion. His disciples, as you recall, were greatly discouraged and downhearted because Jesus was going to leave them soon. And then he spoke these great words of comfort to them and to us. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and where I go you know, and the way you know. Martin Luther called that passage, and I quote, the best and most comforting sermon ever preached by Christ while on this earth. Here Jesus describes heaven as his father's house, where the father resides, Then Jesus describes it as a place that he's preparing for believers. The Greek word that Jesus uses for place is topos, from which we get our English word topography. And so heaven is not a spiritual fairy tale. It's a real place, a specific location, and it's our eternal home. Jesus is preparing saints for heaven, and he's preparing heaven for saints. It was D.L. Moody who well said, heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. That's absolutely true. In fact, all of the places in both heaven and hell are by reservation. They're reserved. The thief on the cross made his reservation in heaven when he said to Jesus, remember me, Lord. Jesus also says that in his father's house are many dwelling places. And what a contrast that is to Christ's time here on earth. When Jesus was about to be born, Mary and Joseph were turned away in Bethlehem because there was no room for them at the inn. Later on during his ministry, Jesus would say, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. As it's been rightly said, the only place where there was enough room for Jesus was on the cross. But in contrast to that, Jesus promises us, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. As we make room for him in our hearts, he makes room for us in heaven. That's not only great news, that's great comfort. In that same passage in John 14, Jesus goes on to make the divine defining statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Unbelievers will describe that as narrow-minded, but the Bible describes it as the narrow road of eternal life. Let me put it to you this way. If you wanted to unite the majority of religions in the world today, all you would need to do is remove Jesus. You can take Jesus out of it, and the religions are all united together in their common belief of a God and of being a spiritual person. In fact, that's exactly what will unite the religions of the world in the tribulation period, removing Jesus. They'll become united in their hatred of God and their love for the devil. Well, finally, we look forward to the great coming. The great commandment, the great commission, the great comfort, and very soon, the great coming, the return of Jesus Christ. Here's some good news for you heading into the new year. The world is falling apart, but God's plan is coming together. Having just celebrated the birth of Christ and his first coming, we're drawing ever close to his return at the rapture of the church and then at his second coming. In 1 John 3, 2, we read, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Each Christmas season, we remember the famous Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah 9 about the birth of Christ, which says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. However, have you ever noticed that the only part of that Old Testament prophecy that was fulfilled at the first coming? Unto us a child is born was fulfilled at the first coming and at his birth. Unto us a child is born speaks of his birth and his humanity, and unto us a son is given emphasizes his deity. But then the statement, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, well, that looks to the future when Jesus will rule and reign in his coming kingdom. We also see this with his titles from the same verse, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Jesus being the Prince of Peace will not be fulfilled until he establishes his kingdom here on earth. The climax of human history will be the second coming of Jesus Christ. But even sooner than that, then his second coming will be the rapture of the church. And in the words of the great Baptist preacher, Adrian Rogers, we are on a collision course with destiny. Soon and very soon, the king will come and we cannot afford to be ignorant or indifferent. The King, the Lord Jesus Christ, is coming. Besides the fact that God loves you, there's nothing more clearly stated in the Bible than the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back again. According to prophecy scholar John Wolvert, the Bible contains about, mm, about a thousand prophecies and about 500 of those have been fulfilled. That leaves 500 prophecies that will still come to pass, and many of those have to do with the second coming of Jesus. The Bible has a track record of 100% accuracy, and that's 100% of the time. Christ's return is a major theme of the Bible. There's over 300 New Testament references to the second coming. That's about one out of every 30 verses. In the New Testament, 23 of the 27 books mention it, and Jesus himself refers to it at least 21 times. And then there's over 1,500 Old Testament passages that reference the second coming. For every time the Bible mentions the first coming, the second coming is mentioned eight times. 
But in my opinion, far too many Christians do not reflect upon the return of Jesus enough. We're not thinking of his soon return like we ought to. Perhaps we're too mindful of this world. One of the final warnings Jesus gave us before his death in Matthew 24, 44, is when he said, you must be ready at all times for the Son of Man will come when least expected. As Billy Graham rightly said, Bible teaching about the return of Christ was once thought to be a doomsday preaching, but not anymore. It is the only ray of hope that shines as an ever-brightening beam in a dark world. So as we, we begin to close our message out, let's finish with the question, what does all this mean for us today? Well, here's three thoughts I want to leave you with. Number one, we need to learn of his coming. The Bible majors on the return of Jesus Christ, first in the rapture of the church and then at his second coming. Therefore, we cannot afford to be ignorant or indifferent about these things. We need to learn about them in the word. Second, we should long for his coming. Listen to how John closes out the book of Revelation. He who testifies to these things, that's Jesus, says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Your reaction right now to Christ's soon return tells you what you need to know. If it's come quickly, Lord Jesus, then you're probably ready. But if it's a sense of fear or uncertainty, then you need to seriously ask yourself where you're at spiritually. And then thirdly, we should look for his coming. Learning, longing, and looking. Since Jesus is returning soon at his second coming, the rapture of the church is coming even sooner. It could happen at any moment. So are you ready? Please listen. When Jesus returns, you won't have time to get ready. You have to be ready. That's why the Bible declares that today is the day of salvation and that now is the acceptable time. Please understand this. You have a free will and you're free to choose, but you're not free from the consequences of your choice. We make our choices and then our choices make us for all of eternity. Jesus said we're either for him or against him with no other options. When Jesus returns, he's coming for those who are for him and who belong to him by saving faith in the grace of his salvation. So let me urge you to trust Christ, to surrender everything to him, to receive his forgiveness for your sins, and to crown him Lord and Savior of your life. The Bible says, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you're confessing him as God coming in the flesh. You're confessing him as the only way to salvation, the way, the truth, and the life. And then uh, Romans 10.8 also says, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Listen, you're just a genuine prayer away from doing that right now, and I pray that you will. And so to all my brothers and sisters in Christ, then, a very joyful and blessed New Year's to you as we look for the soon return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look up, for our redemption draws near. <music>